0: Covering lots of ground today as we get back into the book of John. Wayne's going to come and teach us in a moment as we continue the Meet Jesus series. So, John chapter 1, starting from verse 35 and continuing all the way into chapter 2. So, Lord, as we read your word, we ask for a spirit of revelation. John chapter 1, verse 35. The following day, John was again standing with two of his disciples. As Jesus walked by, John looked at him and declared, Look, there is the Lamb of God. And when John's two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. And Jesus looked around and saw them following. What do you want? he asked them. They replied, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and see, he said. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon when they went with him to the place where he was staying, and they remained with him the rest of the day. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of these men who heard what John said and then followed Jesus. Andrew went to find his brother, Simon, and told him, We have found the Messiah, and Messiah means Christ. Then Andrew brought Simon to meet Jesus. Looking intently at Simon, Jesus said, Your name is Simon, son of John, but you will be called Cephas. And Cephas means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Come, follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, Andrew and Peter's hometown. Philip went to look for Nathanael and told him, We have found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus. Jesus the son of joseph from nazareth nazareth exclaimed nathaniel can anything good come from nazareth come and see for yourself philip replied as they approached jesus as they approached jesus said now here is a genuine son of israel a man of complete integrity how do you know about me nathaniel asked and jesus replied I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. Then Nathanael exclaimed, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. Jesus asked him, Do you believe this just because I told you I'd seen you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. Then he said, I tell you the truth, you will all see heaven open and the angels of God going up and down on the Son of Man the one who is the stairway between heaven and earth. The next day there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities, so Jesus' mother told him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, Fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, Now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best until now. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After the wedding, he went to Capernaum for a few days with his mother, his brothers, and disciples. Over to you, Wayne.
1: Thank you very much, Jason. Great to see you all this morning. Good morning. It's great to be back into our series, Meet Jesus, going through the Gospel of John. And um, so, remember, let's just do a little bit of recapping, not very much, before we launch into these things that Jason's just read to us. Remember that John, comes to the, when he write, comes to the end of his book, he, he says, These are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him you will have life by the power of his name. And so John's been very clear about what his agenda is when he's, when he's writing this book. And as I was prepping this week, I was thinking... Wayne, if someone's asked you, why are you still following Jesus after 49 years? Now, some of you are stunned at that question because you're thinking, wow, he's been alive more than 49 years. He's in good shape for a bloke that age. Thank you. But why I'm still following Jesus is because having made a commitment to Christ as a primary school boy... And having continued to follow after him and learn from him, having continued to examine the evidence, uh, I come to the same place that John comes to, that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And I've encountered him day after day for decades, in very ordinary days where nothing special happened, I've been aware that he's with me, and also through days of Great joy, but also days of fear and also days of trouble. That's why I'm still following Jesus. The evidence points to him. Uh, The reality of my life points to him as well. Now, remember in John, he's got sevens. Remember in the Gospel of John, there there are three lots of sevens. There are seven signs. There are seven titles given to Jesus and there are seven uh, declarations that Jesus makes. And we'll keep working through these this morning. But um, it's important to just position ourselves geographically because this what we've read happened in Israel... And so this map shows us this is the northern part of Israel. It's the Galilee region. Beautiful place. Julie and I visited there. We've been across the Sea of Galilee on the boat. We had, we ate fish by the Sea of Galilee. It's a lovely spot. Beautiful, beautiful countryside. And you can see where Cana is. The little village where we believe it is the village of Cana, where the wedding thing took place. And so you can see that all of this that we've read this morning happens in and around this, this location, around the Sea of Galilee, uh, some of the disciples of Bethsaida, uh, Nathaniel is from Cana. And so that's where this is all happening. And so really the thing that comes through in the text that we've read this morning is the words, come and see Jesus. And that's what I want to focus on this morning. I'm going to say, come and see Jesus. Join those who pursued him, followed him. So let's go through. Now, in the first passage that Jason read to us in John chapter 1, we've got these seven titles of Jesus. Uh, We find them on the lips of people. They're excited. They say it with excitement. They're like, We've been, we've been looking for this. We've been reading the scriptures. We've been studying. Some of them are the disciples of John the Baptist. John the Baptist has been saying, I'm not the one, but the one is coming. And so now John the Baptist is pointing saying, there's the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God is the one who conquers sin. This is from a biblical perspective. Who conquers sin and he eventually comes back to conquer all who refuse to worship him. The word "rabbi," as the text tells us, means a teacher. It's a teacher who understands and explains the teaching, the beauty of God's laws and how to obey them. That's what a rabbi is meant to do. The Messiah is the one who establishes the kingdom of God on earth. Moses prophesied that there would be one who would come after him who would be greater than himself and the other prophets picked this up and you can find that in the book of Deuteronomy on the lips of Moses he told the people there's another one coming who is greater than I am and so they're expecting this one greater than Moses the son of God this is such a wonderful title of Jesus That he is the unique son of God. Remember John 1 opens with he's the word of God made. He's revealed God in flesh. God has taken on flesh. And so Jesus is the son of God who shows us the character of God the father. And in Middle Eastern culture, if you've seen the son, you've seen the father. King of Israel is another title. God's anointed king to deliver Israel from her enemies and to rule on King David's throne in Jerusalem and govern the whole world. This is the title. So these titles that you find in this chapter, this is the this is the real summary. There's lots more that you can go and look at. And I encourage you to do a search on that. So those first six are the ones that are found on the lips of other people. But then there's one that's found on the lips of Jesus himself. And it's his favorite title for himself. He uses it over and over and over again. It's Son of Man. Uh, and this is from what Jesus is referencing. He's pointing them to Daniel 7.13. Take notes on this if you're not familiar with Daniel 7.13. If you are, you already know where we're going. Daniel, Daniel 7, is or the seventh chapter of Daniel's book, is a vision that Daniel had. And in his vision, he says, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven In the Bible, the cloud rider is always God. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. And this son of man, he was given authority, honor and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. That that's something that people made up afterwards. Because they mistakenly think that when Jesus describes him as the son of man, that he's simply saying, I'm a human. I'm a man. They think that's what he's saying. But they misunderstand what he's pointing to. What they fail to see, what they fail to, uh, or sometimes many of them refuse to see, is that, When Jesus says, I'm the son of man, he's pointing everyone to Daniel 7.13. Now, Jewish people know this. And it's partly why it led to Jesus' crucifixion. This claim that you're the man who is the eternal one, the cloud rider, the God man that's standing in Daniel 7. That's given all authority and described and everyone's going to come in that place. This one who has direct access to the throne of the eternal God. This one, this man given authority, honor and sovereignty over all the nations of the world. There's no one like Jesus. This man that people of every race and nation and language will obey. The man whose rule is eternal. It never ends. This man whose kingdom will never be destroyed. This is very clear. John makes it very clear. Jesus makes it very clear that there's no one like Jesus. And so the invitation, I want you to leave here today with a couple of things going on. If you know Jesus, I want you to leave with the joy and be inviting people to say, come and see Jesus for yourself. If you're someone who's here this morning, who's investigating Jesus, you're in a great place because we're going to give you Jesus all the time. But we want to say to you, come and experience Jesus for yourself. Come and learn from him. And those of you that know him, go and keep finding people and say, come and see Jesus for yourself. Come and look for yourself. That's one of the things that comes through in this passage. Because these, these men, they're young men, they've been students of the Bible. As I said, some of them were disciples of John the Baptist. But, and they're excited about Jesus. Because they're going, hang on. In Genesis 3, God promised that he was going to send a redeemer, the one who's going to restore the earth, the one who's going to reconcile us back to God, the one who's going to redeem and put the world back into the order it was originally created. And they're going, this is him. This is the one who, this is here, we're touching him. It's unbelievable. Now, when you find that, you see, you do the th- things that Andrew does. See, what does Andrew do? He meets Jesus. And what does he do? The text tells us, is, it says, he goes to find his brother. They're like, I've got to bring my brother in to meet Jesus. Andrew is a, only gets three references in the book of John. He doesn't get very many references in the New Testament at all, but the three references that John gives him, John shows you the character of Andrew because each of those three references, Andrew is bringing people to Jesus. Now, some of you are Andrews because I know you're always bringing people to see Jesus and some of us, Need to become more of an Andrew and be saying to people, come and meet Jesus. And one of the interesting things, let's have a little chat about family dynamics. We've all got family dynamics, haven't we? Oh, who's got, who's got an older brother or sister? Anyone got an older brother? A few, yep, quite a few of us have. How many of you lived in the shadow of your older sibling? Okay, all right. How many of you are the older sibling and who casts a big shadow over everyone? Yeah, good on you. So, yeah. So we all got a bit of a picture of this. We, we, it's pretty. It seems pretty obvious that Andrew lives in Peter's shadow or Simon's shadow, actually. And the thing, one of the things I love about this encounter is, you, you sit and think about these things as you read the text, is that. Uh, Andrew brings his brother to Jesus, goes, hey, uh, Simon, this is Jesus. Jesus just has that. He looks at Simon and 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 he he says what he says to him. He he just says, your name is is Simon, but you will be called Rock. Yeah, that's what Peter means. That's what Jesus is saying. You'll be called Rock. Now, what we know is that there's, as we know, those who are familiar with the life of Simon, we know that he ain't that right at that moment. And it takes a while before he becomes that, but he eventually becomes that. But I love the thing about how Jesus looks and says, I know who you are, but I know who the Father created you to be. I know who you'll become. And I'm speaking that to you. When I was uh, 15, uh, there was a godly man who was discipling me in the ways of Jesus. And uh, uh, one of the things that is that when we spoke, he would look me right in the eyes. And it was that kind of look that was full of grace and truth, but there was just nowhere to hide. I don't know if you've been gifted with someone like that in your life. We, we, ought, we need to be calm like that. I read a number of years ago a quote from someone whose name I've forgotten. But the quote is this. They said, I pray that your life is as wonderful as it was in the mind of God when he formed you in your mother's womb. I pray that your life is as wonderful as it was in the mind of God when he formed you in your mother's womb. We were all formed in our mother's wombs. And one of the things you want to pray for yourself and pray, parents, pray for your children, grandparents, pray for your grandchildren, is that may your life become as wonderful as it was in the mind of God when he formed you. In your mother's womb. Why don't you just stop for a moment. Just lift up. Just, just say God. Make my life. As wonderful as it was. In, the, in your mind. When you formed me in my mother's womb. Pray for your children. Pray for your grandchildren. Just say God. God. Make our lives as wonderful. As they were in your mind. When you formed us in our mother's womb. Amen. Oh, so Andrew goes and finds his brother. And then the next person we find finding someone is Jesus himself, because it's the next day Jesus finds Philip. So he goes, he finds Philip somewhere, wherever Philip is. And he says to Philip, Philip, you come and follow me. And Philip, we know, is from the same village as Simon and Andrew. So Philip jumps up and he heads straight off, not just to follow Jesus, but to go and find Nathaniel. And he begs Nathaniel to come and meet Jesus. He says, effectively, he says, Look, I know Nazareth has a bad reputation. Because, you, like, you know, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's Nathaniel's response. But come and see Jesus for yourself. Now, let me contextualize this a little bit right at this moment to say, You meet people, you know people who say the church is bad. And we need to say to them, regardless of the reputation of the church, in however you imagine it to be or whatever you've seen, come and see Jesus. I'm taking you to Jesus. And the church is full of imperfect people who are following Jesus. Come and see Jesus. So that's the kind of thing. And so Philip begged, uh, Nathaniel to come. So, and he comes back with Philip. And in that moment of encounter with Jesus, I think Jesus blows Nathaniel's mind. Because he looks at Nathaniel and he says this. He says, now here's a son of Israel, genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. And I just imagine Nathaniel being like, Whoa, and his, he kind of stammers this reply because like, he's been pierced. He says, how do you know me? How do you know? I, I've never met you before. How do you know me? And Jesus says, I know who you are, Nathaniel. I know your character. I know you refuse to pretend. I know you've cultivated integrity in hidden places. You refuse seduction. You refuse deception and deceit and double speak. You say what you mean and you mean what you say. Nathaniel, you're a Psalm 51, 6 man. You have pursued truth in the very core of your being. Now I want you to think for a moment how great it would feel have Jesus, that one that all those he's got all those titles, Jesus look you in the eye and joyfully declare, you're someone with complete integrity. New Life Church needs more adults, teenagers and children like Nathaniel. We need more men and women pursuing the pursuing integrity, refusing Seduction, deception, deceit, or double speak. And Fremantle College needs more students who cultivate integrity in their character. College motto, faith, character, and courage. We need more students who are cultivating integrity in our character. Now, what does that look like? Well, what that means is that you could open Nathaniel's browser history on his phone, his laptop, his computer, wherever, and there's, it's clean. He could give you his phone. You could look through all, all his history of social media, YouTube. Nothing to see here. Nothing hidden. It's such a great place to be when you live without having to hide anything from, it, from yourself and try to hide it from God because that's mission impossible in both ways. It's like, i got nothing to hide here. I can stand before you. Not all of us Are in that place. Ask Jesus. Help me cultivate integrity. So that there's nothing hidden here. I'm not walking in darkness. I'm not trying to keep part of my life in the shadows. Hidden from other people. Because I don't want them to see the truth about me. It is so easy to lie to ourselves. So easy. And we live in a society that is lying to itself. We're literally drowning in lies. And we have to be people as followers of Jesus who resist the pull of the lies of our culture and pursue truth, wisdom and the revelation of God. We have to be people who are investing time in reading and meditating on the Bible. We must be people who never give up that habit of meeting together, of studying the scriptures, of singing the scriptures, praying the scriptures over and over again so that his truth, his wisdom becomes into our very being and we are able to discern fact from fiction and lies and deceit. We're able to discern the worldview of what's coming to us because everything, everything we see around us is telling us is coming to us from a world view. It's like this is how the world works. And if we don't understand what the Bible says about the world. How the world works. And the, God's worldview, We will be seduced by this one. And, we, and this is why we are those holy people. Set apart people. We're a peculiar people because we are marching to the voice of the bridegroom king who's coming to rule and reign. We are not marching to the beat of our culture. We live in this culture, but we are not conformed to this culture. And if we and our children, if we don't know God's truth, we're going to easily believe what are cleverly disguised lies that our society is telling us. Some of you know the name of Jordan B. Peterson, the Canadian psychologist that wrote a bestseller a couple of years ago that's called 12 Rules for Life, an Antidote to Chaos. I've not read it, but I know people that have and I've read lots of reviews and I've seen lots of his videos and things like that. But rule number eight, some of you have read this book. What was rule number eight? Tell the truth. That's right. Or at least don't lie. (laughs) I think telling the truth and not lying are the same thing, aren't they? just saying the same thing. So how many have heard of Alexander Solzhenitsyn? Some of you have. Well, let's go back a little bit to talk about Joseph Stalin, who was a communist dictator of the Soviet Union in the 20th century. His... Stalin followed on from Lenin. Their socialist, communist policies of so-called equality led to the starvation, the torture, the imprisonment and the murder of millions of people. And in 1945, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who who is a Russian writer, philosopher and historian, he was sentenced to eight years in prison for criticising Stalin in private letters to a school friend. Have a think about that every time you go, hey Siri, or hey whatever all the other names are that they've, all these listening devices we put in our houses. Well, he was sentenced to eight years for criticising the president in a private letter to a school friend. Eight years. He survived Stalin's death camps which were called gulags. And he wrote a book about that experience with that name in it, the Gulag Archipelago, I think it's called. So, and as further punishment, can you, this is how vindictive the Russians were in those days. As further punishment to him in 1974, he was permanently exiled to the United States of America. That's how cruel they are. You can never come back to Russia. What's the downside? Anyway, he was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1970. In Solzhenitsyn's final essay to the Russian people before he was exiled, and that essay was titled, Live Not By Lies. Live Not By Lies. And here's a quote from that. From that essay, he said, you can resolve to live your life with integrity. Let your credo be this. Let the lie come into the world. Let it even triumph, but not through me. That was, He stood on that, right? This is a man who's had eight years in prison camps. He's permanently being exiled to the West. He's suffered all sorts of things. But he said, He refused to capitulate to the lies in the culture. Now you can read that essay, Live Not by Lies, available, it's available to read for free online. We need to be men and women of integrity. We need to raise children who are ones of integrity and who are courageous, who can discern between lies and truth. We are living in a society which is Compounding the lies as it drifts further and further away from a Judeo Christian worldview and foundation. Here's some lies that are in our society today. Let me say up front that some of these are going to be confronting. I've only got a short list. I could have had a very, very long list, but we'd be here till this afternoon. People, it's a lie that a boy or a girl can be born in the wrong body. From the moment of conception, Every cell in every person's bodies is coded with either the XS, XX, which is the female, or it's or every cell is coded XY, which is the male chromosome. Every cell is the same. It's not like there's a mixing and matching going on. Every cell is the same. It's a lie that the relationship between two men or two women is equal to the marriage of one man to one woman. That's another lie. It is a lie that sexual intimacy is okay between consenting adults who are not married. It is a lie that we can and should guarantee equality of outcomes without regard for individual effort. It is a lie that a person is a racist on the basis of the colour of their skin, not the content of their character, as Martin Luther King said, that he's dreamed of living in a world where people are judged by the content of their character, not the colour of their skin. And that currently there's lies about the fact that people based on the colour of their skin are racist. That's the only thing you need to know about them. What color is their skin? Because race they're not. Those are a few of the many lies that our society is drowning in. Paul said this in Romans 1. That God actually shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth. He goes on to say, this is what that anger looks like. God abandons them to their shameful desires. They want a world without God, they get a world without God. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Their lives become full of every kind of wickedness, sin, Greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud and boastful. They even invent new ways of sinning. They refuse to understand. They break their promises. They are heartless and they have no mercy. And worse yet, they encourage others to do the same. And into that context, into that reality, are people like us who are following Jesus. And we're saying, come and see Jesus. Give up the lies. Come and walk in the truth. Come and see him for yourself. And on that day when Jesus met Nathaniel and affirmed that he was a man of complete integrity, he was a man who didn't live by lies. And I want to put a question before us all this morning. And I hope it's a scary question in the best sense of the word. If you stood in front of Jesus and he looked you in the eyes, would he say the same to you that he said to Nathaniel? Here's a a true follower of mine, a person of complete integrity, not double-minded, doesn't say one thing and do a different thing, doesn't live one way when he's... At church in a different way when he's out with his mates doesn't do any of that it's the same everywhere it's the same at work at work he's the same person as he is in terms of their character come and see jesus we rise up. Let's rise up to this. If you if you're sitting there, and you're like this is not meant to be condemning. It's like it's a call up. It's like if you aren't there yet, it's like and you I want to just call on the name of Jesus. Just say, Jesus, make me that kind of person. I want to stand before you unashamed. It's a beautiful song we used to sing by a songwriter Justin Rizzo. On the day I stand before you, I want to be unashamed. I want to be found faithful, Jesus, to the very end. That's who we're called to be. Now, it's like if you're not there yet, that's okay. But It's like the pursuit of Christ to say, form me, you young guys on the front row. Say, form me like this. Children, say, cry out. Say, Jesus, form this in me so that when I see you face to face, I'm not ashamed. And in John chapter 2, we go to the village of Cana where Nathaniel is from Cana. Now, we go to this wedding where hospitality is a very important thing in Israel and people honour their guests with the best that they have. It's a wonderful thing. As we go through this little little text and we won't uh, spend too much, we'll spend a little bit of time but not as much as I've spent on the first half this morning. It was probably the first two-thirds rather than the first half for those of you that are mathematically going off. That's the long half and this is the short half. Two halves are the same. They make a whole. So let's say that was two-thirds and one-third. Okay, we're all good? All the mathematicians are like, phew, got that. They... Okay, so now yeah, I love this exchange. Uh, you know, the situation and uh, the wine's running out. Now, and I don't know how Mary knows this. Do you ever think, how does Mary know that the wine's run out? Like, do they come does she she friends with the host? Does she come and go? It's run out, or what's what's going on? And so then she goes to Jesus and I don't know how that scene took place. She sort of whispered in his ear as he's sitting at the table, Son, Jesus, I've run out of wine. Like, why is she telling him? Like, what does Mary know? That's what I want to know. Like, what does Mary know that she's saying to Jesus? You run out of wine. Can you fix this situation? You know? Like have they been somewhere else? Did they run out of wine at home? And Jesus went, No worries, I got a covered mum, <laughs> you know, like that. Do you want anyway, okay, so so what did Mary know about her son? You see, what did Mary know about Jesus? Right? And that ought to be the question that people are talking to us about. What do you know about Jesus that you're saying, the things that you say about Jesus? So, and, uh, and then there's this little interchange and Jesus says, Dear woman, my time has not yet come. So, now, in case you're thinking Jesus is being condescending, I want to point out to you that when he uses the phrase, dear, well, we tr- it's translated as dear woman, that is the same phrase he says to Mary in John nineteen twenty six, when he's hanging on the cross and he says to her dear woman this is your son and, and he gestures to John and it's the whole exchange like John goes I'm going to take care of your mum for you Jesus. So it's, a, it's, not, it's not, not a condescension. Don't, don't hear Jesus being condescending to his mum. And when he says, my time is not yet come, that's actually an Aramaic idiom. Aramaic is a language that they would have spoken. It's a figure of speech. And it's kind of like saying, um, what you're thinking and what I'm thinking aren't the same. You ever been in a conversation with someone? And it's like, what you're saying and what I'm saying, not the same. So, and Jesus... Um, And then Mary walks away and has this little conversation with whoever the servants are. And I'm thinking, why did she do that? And what happened? What happened internally for Jesus when Mary walks away? What did Jesus do? And I think this is probably how it plays out, at least in my head and according to the scriptures, Uh, What what I mean is, according to my understanding, interpretation, application of the Scriptures, is that Jesus probably had a conversation with the Father, because in John 5.19, Jesus says, I only say and do what I see the Father saying and doing. So I think he had a conversation about with the Father to say, Father, what are you wanting at this time? What are you doing and saying that I should do at this time? But I also wonder whether embedded in that conversation was also uh, the, a, com- a part of this about of Exodus 20, 20 verse 12, which is one of the what we call the Ten Commandments, which is to honour your father and mother. And I wonder whether Jesus having a father say, to God the father and saying, Father, how do I honour you and mother in this situation? Isn't that a great question? Great question for teenagers. Great question for children. How do I honour my mother and father in this situation? That's worth putting on the mirror. And that's what I think is going on. And I think the father says you can honour both of us by doing this and then we see it playing out. And I th- wonder whether God the Father says something like, Son, we are going to redeem the honor of this family that have run out of wine, and we're going to give them a taste of the abundance of our kingdom's grace and joy. Let's do it. Don't you wonder if that's what the Father said? Because to run out of wine is going to be, is, is sh- it's like in Big embarrassment, you know. It's like, you know, imagine half you, you go to your wedding and half of your guests get food and then the kitchen staff come and say, I've run out of food. It's like, well, half the people haven't been fed. You know, it's that kind of dynamic. And I think this, this reality of God the Father is saying, we are going to redeem this family's honour. There's going to be no shame here. Because that's what God does. God does not shame. Jesus bore our shame. Jesus bore our iniquity. And so the father says, we're going to give these people a taste, figuratively and literally, of the abundance of our kingdom's grace and joy. And so the servants are told to fill these water pots. And I think they're something about the size of this. So they're told to fill them to the brim. Each one. Holding all those gallons, there's nothing else that's going in them, and you think about that. Like, how long is it going to take to fill one of those? And there's six of them. It's going to take a bit of time, so this doesn't happen in a hurry. And by the way, there's no hose. They've got to get it from the well, or where, you know, they've got to go get it and draw it. Assuming they, they probably already, some of them probably already had a they were filled, because of the ceremony washing that would take place, if uh, the um, practicing Jews would wash before they ate and uh, all this kind of thing. So there's a conversation. But before we talk too much more about that, I want to be really clear what John's describing when he talks about this wedding. I want to make sure that we don't import our culture into the scriptures. In the Bible... Marriage is between a bridegroom and a bride, a man and a woman. And this man and woman have had no sexual intimacy before marriage. They haven't lived together before marriage. They've never even been alone together before marriage. There's always been a family member with them to ensure that they maintain the honor and reputation of both the families. They're never alone until the wedding night. You see, in the Bible, the intergenerational family is the priority, not the individual. In our culture, it's, we celebrate the individual at the detriment to the family. And the detriment to the wider family. We don't think of it in this terms. What's best for the family? And children are raised. And one of the, the things in our culture is we're told, demand your rights as a child or as a teenager or all these kinds of things. But it's not the way in the Bible. And one of the things about living in a village is you like, it's like living in what we call a fishbowl. Because everyone knows everyone else's business. Everyone knows who you belong to. Everything's seen and known. Now, I want to say that that provides a wonderful protection and safety net. And yeah, it can be a little bit frustrating when you want to do the wrong thing. But if you're not wanting to do the wrong thing, if you're wanting to do the things that honour God, it's a great protection and safety net for us all. And in the Bible, marriage is shown to be something that is greater and more glorious than our society knows And that many Christians don't even know. And Paul wrote about it this way when he wrote to the Ephesians. And he said, as the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. And the two are united into one. And here here it gets phenomenal. He says, this is a great mystery. It is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. All of you who are married in the room, just stop for a moment and say, thank you God that my marriage can be an illustration of the joining of Christ and the church as one. Those of you that aren't married, set it in your hearts right now that your marriage will be this kind of marriage. And you are looking for a man or a woman with integrity. So we've got 180 gallons or about 820 litres I did the math on this, that's 68 dozen one bottle, one litre bottles, or approximately 1,100 bottles of wine that we buy in our shops here, because we tend to sell by 750 mils. So it's a lot of wine. And I wondered to myself, at what point did it become wine? So they filled the jars to the brim. They dip some out, like in the dipping, as the person, as the servant. Imagine being the servant, right? Because Jesus said, okay, Phil, now dip, take some to the MC. You're like, right. Okay. Like, so at what point, like, did they look in and go, well, that's a funny coloured water? Or was it still water? And then they dipped and it, and they went, whoa. Whoa, my goodness. That's a lot of wine. Um, or was it still water as they took it to the MC and they went, Jesus sent this for you and, whoa, my goodness. Like, I don't know. You, we're not told because we don't need to know that information. It's just fun to think about, isn't it? And then the MC drinks it and goes, Whoa. This is the good stuff. And he goes, hey, you know, says what he says to the bridegroom. You know, normally people do the cheap stuff, you know, the expensive stuff first, and then it runs out and they bring out the cheap stuff. But you say the best wine for last. This wine is far superior. And where scriptures tell us, this is the first, John tells us, this is the first of the seven signs that reveal the glory of Jesus that is going to uh, unfold in his book. But notice the context of this. Just have a think about it. If you cast your mind back to the map that I put up earlier, right? This is a little village. It's out in the middle of kind of nowhere, You know, it's an unpretentious house. It's not the rich and the famous. It's not the great and the glorious. It's just, we don't even know the names of the family. But this is the place where God chooses to unveil his glory. We're ordinary people. He's the hero. Jesus is the hero. He's the great one. He is the glorious one. There isn't anyone like Jesus. I want to come back and finish, and the worship team can come back, come up and help us finish. But I want to come back to at the very beginning. Remember, I said something about I'm still following Jesus after forty nine years. How of you remember that? I know it was a long time ago, but anyway. Um, And so, using the words of John one, I'm convinced. I'm follow. I'm still following Jesus because I have become convinced by the evidence that Jesus is the promised Lamb of God. He is Rabbi, Messiah, the one Moses and the prophets wrote about. He's the Son of God. He's the King of Israel, and he's Daniel's Son of Man. And I've encountered him day after day and being transformed by wholeheartedly obeying and worshipping him. And so my invitation to you is come and see Jesus. And come and invite, go out and invite people to come and see Jesus for themselves. Because when they see Jesus, they'll be confronted with the truth about who they are. Jesus will speak things to them like he spoke to Simon, and he's spoken to some of you that this is who you're created to be. And he calls you up to be the best you. That God created you to be. Let's invite people. Come and see Jesus. Yep, our church might have a bad rap. Our school might have a bad rap. Whatever it might be. the ch- You know, it's Jesus that you need. It's Jesus you need to see. Will you pray with me? If you're sitting here in this morning and your eyes are closed just as we pray... And saying I'm someone who's never really met Jesus I'd like someone to introduce me to Jesus I'd like someone who I could meet with and talk to about Jesus I want to say to you will you come come and talk to me at the end of the service this morning or find a person that brought you and say help me help me know Jesus But for those of you that are listening, who know Jesus, think about the people in your circle of relationships who don't know Jesus. And and say, God, help me be courageous. Help me be excited. And to say to them, come and see Jesus for yourself. God, my prayer for us all is that is that we will become men and women like well, like you first and foremost, Jesus. Absolutely, being transformed, being conformed to your image and likeness. And Nathaniel gives us this this glimpse of what it means to be someone who lives, who doesn't live by lies or deception half-truths, but a man of complete integrity. And Father, I'm asking, I am asking, and I don't know whether those people are listening are asking you, but I think some are asking you that the integrity of Nathaniel and the integrity of Jesus Christ would be formed in their character. God, I'm asking for it to be a widespread thing in our youth in our children but that they see it modeled in the adults I'm asking that it will be a widespread thing in the culture of Fremantle Christian College God that you would form and fashion students who are boys and girls of integrity who don't live by lies they don't tell lies and they don't live by the lies that they've told by That our culture is telling them but they live by the truth Holy Spirit I'm asking, give revelation because some of us, we're so familiar with the lies we actually think it's truth now we've told ourselves the lie for so long we've lived the lie for so long that we actually have lost perspective on the truth and we've become deceived, God will you please break in with light and truth For those who are trapped in them in a web that they initially thought they could control, but now it controls them a web of lies and deceit, and they do not know the truth. They cannot tell the truth from lies. God break in to the people who are listening to my voice. Break in with your light, Jesus. With your truth. Penetrate through the lies and deception. Bring people to freedom. All glory and honor to you, Jesus. All glory and honor and power belongs to you, Jesus. It is right that we worship you. It is right that we respond to you. So you alone are worthy of worship. Every moment of every day. Thank you for what you're doing in us and through us. Reveal yourself more and more to us and through us, I pray.